Hi, everybody. At every location, I want to say I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I'm so glad you're here for this talk. Uh, we are one church, many locations, and, and thrilled that that's what God's calling us to. You're actually one person with a number of cells. That's what I want to talk about in this message. You have four cells. That's why a part of every human being is such a mystery and is so deep. There are four, what you might think of as versions of you or dimensions of your identity that together tell the whole story of who you are. The first self is the one that everybody knows. The second self is the self that nobody knows. The third self is the one that you don't even know. And the fourth self, well, we'll come to the fourth self. We're in a series called Cross-Examine, and we're looking at how the message of the cross of Jesus places key decisions in front of each of us. And what we look at today is this, whom am I living to please? Whose judgment of me or examination of me or opinion of me will I allow to determine my happiness and sense of self-worth? Life is a journey from the first self to the fourth. And if you make it to that fourth self, that is salvation. That is your highest good. And if you do not, it is failure and death, whatever else it might look like you've achieved in life. You are, right now, either on your way moving toward that fourth self or moving away from it. Now, we're living these days in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And the place where I first saw the existence of these four selves is in chapter 4 of his first letter to the Corinthians, where he writes, This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And at that time, each will receive their praise from God. So here we go, the four selves. The first self is my public self, who you think I am. This is my outer self. This is the image I project. It is the me that gets praised or criticized by other people. Now, when I idolize my public self, and I have a tendency to do this, then I hide my bad qualities and exaggerate my good qualities and make my life all about impression management and self-promotion, and I become a prisoner of other people's opinions of me of my critics. Paul does not think this is a good life strategy. Paul says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. That is a remarkable statement. If you want to, turn to the person next to you right now and say, I care very little what you think about me. Now in Corinth, the idolization and promotion of the public self was a way of life. And the standard term for it was boasting. You ever boast? Ever find yourself doing a little self-promotion? Worse, have you ever boasted about something with another person where it turned out they were way better at what you were bragging about than you are? Now, you might know the person I have learned the most from and admired most deeply was a man named Dallas Willard. He taught philosophy at the University of Southern California. He was the smartest man I have ever known in my life. I'll tell people I'd never get into an argument with Dallas because I'm afraid he would prove I don't exist. 
But what was most amazing about him was that his humility exceeded his intellect. The first book of his I read influenced me so much, more than any book other than the Bible, that I wrote to tell him. And more than 25 years later, after Dallas had died, his daughter told me that Dallas had saved that letter all this time, and she gave it back to me, that first letter I'd ever written to Dallas before I'd ever met him. And it was wonderful to have that again until I saw that I had signed it, John C. Ortberg, Jr., Ph.D. I had to tell him, Dallas Willard, I have a Ph.D. That's Dr. Ortberg, please. He sent me back a very kind note when I wrote him. Guess what three letters he did not put after his name, even though he had one. See, part of the irony of boasting is we do it to convince people that we're superior and secure. But of course, if we really were secure, we wouldn't feel the need to boast in the first place. It turns out to be really hard to boast effectively. Now, you might be surprised to learn the Bible has a great deal to say about boasting, and particularly this is true in Corinth. The word boast is used 59 times in the New Testament, 55 times by Paul, 39 times when he's writing to the church at Corinth. So Corinth is ground zero for boasting in the ancient world. Now, in Corinth, boasting referred to the verbal techniques that were used to pursue status in an honor-shame society. It was essentially a technical term, and you could almost replace it in our day with personal brand management or marketing yourself. In fact, one of the best-selling books in the ancient world was written by a Roman writer named Plutarch, and it was called On Praising Oneself Inoffensively, how that book would sell today. It was written specifically for politicians to help them learn to boast in a more effective manner. Ever hear of a politician boasting? Well, Corinth was filled with inscriptions where wealthy benefactors promoted their brand. The single most famous inscription in the ancient world was carved on two pillars in Rome, capital of the ancient world, and it was called the Deeds of the Divine Augustus. And then there was a copy of the deeds of the divine Augustus. This is what it said. Below is a copy of the deeds of the divine Augustus by which he subjected the whole world to the dominion of the Roman Empire. Anybody want to guess who wrote the deeds of the divine Augustus? That would be Augustus. And for 35 paragraphs, count them, he recounts the offices he held, the battles that he won, the titles that were his, the wealthy dispersed. And it ends with him saying, I received by decree of the Senate the title Augustus, the doorpost of my house were publicly decked with laurels. A civic crown was fixed above my door, and a golden shield was bestowed upon me by the Senate and the Roman people on account of my valor, clemency, justice, and piety. After that, I excelled all others in dignity. Hashtag killing it. Hashtag blessed. Hashtag humble brag. And that is how you praise yourself inoffensively in Rome, or Corinth, or maybe Facebook, or Twitter, or Instagram. That's the public self, see. It's boasting is this whole world constructed around uh, promoting my self-image. Now, what's Paul's strategy for dealing with this public self? And his strategy, oddly enough, to us is die to it. Die to your public self. Now, in Corinth, 
comparing and evaluating speakers, sages, sophists, orators, is what they did. It was kind of like teaching, speaking. What Paul did in that day was like Olympic figure skating in our day. The whole point was to impress the judges. That's how you found out if you won. So Paul's response is quite amazing. I really don't care very much. A little, not much. Just to level the playing field, I'm going to ask everybody here in a moment, raise your hands if you have ever been criticized. Think about different areas of your life, your appearance, your athletic ability, your work, your personality, your habits, the way you treat other people, the way you drive, the way you deal with anger, your words. Then think about the people in your life, your parents, your teachers, coaches, boss, friends, enemies, relatives, people you are dating, people you used to date, people you tried to date. How many have ever at least one time been criticized in your life? Criticism is inevitable. In Corinth and here, at my first church, I used to work on a team with a person who would often start a sentence, I don't mean to criticize, but, and then guess what he would do? Of course he meant to criticize. That's exactly what he meant to do. Now, in Corinth, people were devoted to their public self-enhancement project. And they were turning the church into one more place to do that. Paul talks about how they were constantly posturing to appear smart and rich and strong and honored and turning spirituality into one more competitive activity. By way of contrast, look at how Paul goes on to describe his own life. We are fools for Christ. To this very honor, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. How's Paul's self-enhancement project going? That word translated fool is the Greek word moros. We get our word moron from that. We're regarded as morons. And he ends up scum of the earth, garbage of the world. Garbage is the Greek word parapsema, which is so extreme that Bible versions wrestle with how to translate it. It's the word that they would use for what gets swept up from a filthy floor or dirt removed from the body, earwax, belly button link. It is a bumper sticker word. Parapsema happens. Paul, that's a little dramatic, isn't it? Garbage of the world, scum of the earth. Paul is simply describing the extent to which he has died to what other people think about him, image management, the public self. He's just simply let it go. And here's the irony. When you die to the public self, you don't live miserable. You live free. You think it'd be awful, but it's not. Loose Meads put it like this. Don't let your critic be your judge. The big difference between a critic and a judge. A critic offers an opinion. A judge imposes a sentence. A critic can offer a word, a judge gets the last word. So it's good to listen to my critics, but not let them become my judge. Paul loves the Corinthians, but he will not let them judge him. In fact, Paul goes on to say, I do not even judge myself. Now this brings us to self number two. Self number one is my public self, who you think I am. Self number two is my private self, who I think I am. There is a me I don't want anyone else to see things that I've done that I'm ashamed of. Anger or jealousy or disappointment or greed or grandiosity that I try to hide. So now I can think of my public self 
and my private self as two overlapping circles. The more that my private self is congruent with the same as my public self, the more authentic or sincere or honest or truthful I am. This overlap is the, what we might think of as the authenticity zone. The area outside of that zone is where I am hypocritical or hidden. I pretend to be nicer or braver or more agreeable or smarter than I really am. And it takes a lot of energy to prop up that zone. So the strategy for dealing with my private self is to reveal the private self. To let it be known. Don't hide. Don't fake. Don't pretend. Don't indulge the desire to look better than I really am. So the strategy for dealing with my private self is to reveal my private self. Just stop hiding. Don't fake it. Don't pretend. Don't indulge the desire to look any better than you really are. In fact, full disclosure, I'm such a bad drawer, I couldn't even draw these circles. Somebody else drew them. They are not my circles. I'm a terrible drawer. Now, this is why at Menlo Church, we believe it is so important for people to be part of a life group. The private self can never be healed as long as it remains hidden. You, I, can only be loved to the extent that we're actually known. And we want every life group to be a safe place, a place where you can find another person to whom you can gradually, appropriately, wisely, over time, it takes time to build trust, reveal your private self so that you can be known and you can be loved. There's a fascinating term that Paul uses that describes the temptation of the private self. He says to the folks at Corinth, do not go beyond what is written, that is what is in the scripture, then you will not be puffed up. Now the word translated puffed up literally means to be filled with air. This is the inflated ego, trying to look bigger than I really am. And, and people at Corinth struggled with this so much that Paul talks about it repeatedly. Some of you have become puffed up, he says in chapter 4, verse 18. And then in chapter 5, and you are puffed up. And then in chapter 8, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. What kind of knowledge puffs us up? Any kind of, even spiritual knowledge, even knowledge of the Bible can do this. This is part of what Jesus knew. Our elders met not long ago, and the elder that was leading our devotional time actually split us up into little teams and had us do a competitive, scorekeeping Bible quiz to see who had the most Bible knowledge. Now, these are the elders, which means they're my bosses. But I'm the pastor. I'm the one who went to seminary, whose job it is to teach the Bible. So if I lose, it looks like I don't know the Bible. But if I win, I'm showing up my bosses so my public self in that moment is acting like, I don't care who wins, I'm beyond that, for I have been crucified with Christ. While my private self is thinking, I've got to beat these people's brains out, but look modest while I'm doing it. That moment when they revealed the final score of the competition was a very interesting moment. And that leads us to the third self. By the way, are any of you so carnal that you're wondering who won the Bible competition? I am not going to tell you. I would tell you, but that would be boasting. Did I tell you I have a PhD? The, the third self, the self that slips out every once in a while, even when I don't want it to, is my real self. 
That is who God knows me to be, my real self. So fascinating. The Corinthians were Paul's critics, but he wouldn't let them be his judges. Paul was his own biggest critic. He examined himself quite carefully. He called himself the least of the apostles. He famously lamented, that which I would do, I don't, but that which I would not do, I find myself doing. So he was quite critical of himself often, but Paul said he was not his own judge. He says, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. In other words, Paul says, I am not qualified to be my own judge because there is far too much about me that I do not know. My capacity for self-deception is too great. My conscience might be clear, but that doesn't mean I'm innocent. It's a fascinating thing that in our day, in popular psychology, we often run across the idea that we don't think highly enough of ourselves, we need to think higher. But research from empirical psychology consistently shows that we think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We accept more responsibility for our successes than our failure. We remember voting for the winning candidates more often than we actually did. We have an inflated belief in our ability to know truth compared to other people. The average business person believes that they are above average in their ethics. 70% of high school students believe they are above average in leadership. From a survey of 800,000 high school students, 0% believe they were below average in ability to get along with others. Now, obviously, 50% are average or below. 0% thought they were below average. Not only do the majority of drivers believe they are above average drivers, the majority of people in the hospital who were injured in a driving accident that was their fault believe they are above average drivers. The average person believes they will live longer than the average mortality age, which is why Freud used to tell the story about a husband who said to his wife, if one of us dies, I think I'll go to Paris. In other words, there is a gap between my private self that person that I think myself to be, and my real self, the person that actually exists that only God knows. Now, there's an overlapping zone here. This is who I think I am. This is who God knows me to be. And so we might call this the zone of self-awareness. This is where I actually do know the truth about myself. It's where the person that I think myself to be and that I actually am are one and the same. And the area outside that zone is Fantasy Island. It is what used to make for bad but riveting American idol auditions. Everybody knows this person cannot sing except the person themselves. So what's the strategy here? It is to discover, to come to know my real self. Now, how do I do that? Who knows my real self? God does. And I ask God to reveal the truth about me to myself. I examine my life with an open mind and a humble spirit. And the Bible is so brilliant about this human psychology. The psalmist put it like this. But who can discern their own errors? Who actually knows this? God, forgive my hidden faults. See, only God is thoroughly qualified to be my judge. 
You can't be. I can't be. God can. He knows everything about me. He knows my outer actions. He knows my inner thoughts. He knows my public words. He knows my private desires. He knows the wounds I have inflicted on others. He knows the wounds I have received. I've been reminded so vividly, everybody that you see is fighting a battle you do not see. They fight anxiety or depression or addiction or compulsion or they were abused or they were molested. Now this is why Paul says to judge nothing before the appointed time, before God makes everything clear. Especially do not live with a judgmental spirit towards other people. God judges me, but God loves me and accepts me and forgives me and wants to transform me. And that actually is the fourth self. The fourth self is my glory self. That is who God wants me to become. Your glory self is the person that God wants you to become. And next week at the beginning of the Advent season, we're going to look at the power that God has to reconcile ourselves to him and to each other and to become agents of reconciliation in this world, to move it towards the glory that God intended from the beginning. Everybody has a glory self. Tim Keller writes that your glory self is the person God had in mind when he thought you up, as radiant as heaven itself. See, the real reason that we want to be famous or beautiful or admired is because we were made for glory and we can never stop craving it. But when we try to get there without the inner transformation of character that genuine glory requires, it's a train wreck. Now in Corinth, they were trying to make their public self their glory self, see? And that's the constant human temptation. You will be like God. That is why it can be so depressing to go on Facebook and seeing other people's glory self compared to your private self. And Paul's strategy for this one is desire becoming the glory self above all else. It's an ironic thing. We talk in our day about and crave self-esteem so much that it often seems odd to people in our day that the Bible is full of such dark warnings about our sin and our evil. On the other hand, in our day, our most grandiose descriptions of ultimate human potential look timid and pale and small next to what Paul writes is in store for us. And he's constantly saying things like, and we all who with unveiled faces, that is, without hiding our public selves, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So you have a real self. That is you, as you exist right now, with all of your fallenness, all of my fallenness, that only God knows for sure. But you also have a glory self. And I have one of those. And when they begin to overlap, uh, we have to go way back in time because in our day we don't tend to have a good word for this. This uh, overlapping zone is what is called in the Bible sanctification. To be made holy and whole and glorious. Other words for it 
are words like heaven and joy and love and everlasting life to shine like a radiant star. One of the reasons that falling in love is so powerful is that when somebody falls in love with you, they get a little glimpse of your glory self. When you're deeply in love, that's all you can see. You think that's all there is, is just the glory self. And then you get married, and, and the real self looks real clear. And you might lose sight of the glory self altogether, but it's still there. We were at a party, and afterwards at home, Nancy says to me, you talk too much. And I say, no, I don't think so. I was saying such wonderful, clever, funny things. That was my glory self. And she says, no, that wasn't your glory self. That was your inflated, puffed up public self. Your glory self is downstairs cleaning out the garage. When you fall in love with somebody, you actually get a little glimpse of this. And, and we're meant to see this and to see the real self and to call out the glory self in one another. And that brings us to one very practical note that I want to end on. Paul makes a statement to the Corinthians that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs all the trouble. An eternal weight of glory. The word for glory back in the Old Testament in Hebrew, kabod, was a word that also meant weight. There is a weight of glory. And there's a wonderful essay written by C.S. Lewis that he calls the weight of glory. And he ends it by saying, we should work really hard when we look at other people, normal people, ordinary people, to think about their glory selves. You could sneak a look at the person you're sitting next to right now as you listen to C.S. Lewis's words. It is a serious thing, he writes, to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to now may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. I know, I know, I know, I know how hard that is. I know at Thanksgiving, there was somebody sitting around that table that drives you crazy. And there was somebody sitting around that table that you drive crazy. And that's why starting next week, we're going to have this whole series about how do we bring reconciliation into a broken world, reconciliation with God and, and with those people that drive us crazy. So don't miss that. Because that person, your neighbor, your office partner, your roommate, your child, your parent, your friend, that kid that serves you across the counter at Starbucks or McDonald's, that cashier, that hard relative is holy is unspeakably holy. So see past the public person. See past the private person that they struggle with. See past the real person that is so filled with flaws and wounds and scars right now. See the glory. Everybody you see, every time you look in the mirror, every conversation you have, every pair of eyes, see the glory.
see the glory. I'll see you next week.